All right, so we are in uh, 1 Timothy 2, working our way through the New Testament. We go verse by verse on Sunday mornings through the entire New Testament. And we're looking at today, we're looking at ecclesiology. You're saying, ecclesiology, what is that? Title of my message is ecclesiology. Um, what it means is this, two Greek words. Ecclesia is church, ology is study. And so if, you're, if it's theology, theo is God, what's theology? It's the study of God. If it's ecclesia, which is church, analogy, knowledge, uh, and study of, it means the study of the church. And so we're going to see here in 1 Timothy 2 is we're going to see some principles for us as a church. We're going to see the principles of what should be our priority as a church, what should be our mission as a church, what should be our message as a church, what should be our order as a church. Those are the four things we're going to see today. We're going to see the priority of prayer. We're going to see the, the, the mission of seeking and saving the lost. We're going to see the message that Christ is the mediator between God and man. And then we're going to see the order. How should some of the order within the church unravel and unfold as we go through this scripture? I don't know about you, but I love church. Ever since I got saved, 40 plus years ago, I love church. I love church that's a Bible teaching church. I love church that's spirit-filled worship. I love church that has people that are on fire I can interact with. I love church. And so this study today is, is, is dear to my heart because it's about church. One of the reasons why I love church, too, is because it's the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We have the privilege of being his hands and his feet here in a world that desperately needs the touch of God. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's getting worse. Lawlessness, as Jesus said, is what is increasing in these last days. And we, if, if, if there's ever a time the church needs to stand up and be the church of Jesus Christ, it's today. If there's ever a time where we need to be the hands and feet of Christ in a dark time, it's today. We need to, we need to be what this scripture is talking about this morning. We need to not just say we're the church, we need to be the church. And so we're going to learn some great principles this morning on what we're supposed to be about as a church. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And again, we're going to be looking at ecclesiology, the, the, the study of the church this morning. By the way, this is going to get a little controversial, now, especially towards the end of the chapter. It's going to be pastor on the hot seat. And one of the reasons why it's going to get a little controversial is because the, the church isn't supposed to just go with the flow of the culture. Amen. We're supposed to change the culture. Amen. The church is not supposed to be biblically, we're supposed to be biblically correct, not necessarily politically correct. And so we're going to see today some things that go against the flow of what the culture is pushing us towards, and we're supposed to go against that because the Bible says, don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we're going to see today some things that, by the end of the chapter, it's, it's going against the flow of the culture. But I don't, I don't care about being politically correct. I care about being biblically correct. I don't care if our church is hip and cool with the culture. I care that our church is following the Word of God. And we're building this church not on cultural norms, but on biblical moorings. That's what's important. And that's what we're going to learn today, is what are the biblical emphasis that we should be all about as a church? Let's stick with the Word of God and not with the culture on us. Our job is not to flow with the culture. Our job is to change the culture and to change it. We're supposed to be people that are, that are change agents, and a church is supposed to be a, 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 a basically not, not, a, a, not a thermometer, but a thermostat. You know what the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat is? 
Thermometer just goes with, the, with the, whatever the temperature is and changes. Thermostat changes. Changes. I, I don't know. Is this true in, in your households too? Guys, are we always in like this battle with wives? With, it's, it's not it, different, different temperatures, right? The thing I love, love about thermostats is you could change the very environment. We're supposed to change the environment just as a thermostat, as the church of Jesus Christ. So let's get into it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. If you're there, say amen. Here we go. Okay. First of all, Paul says to Timothy, again, these are pastoral epistles. These are pastoral letters to Timothy, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then to Titus, who is also a pastor on the island of Crete. So these are pastoral uh, epistles, and he's addressing the church with these pastors. So he says, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. Now, entreaties are urgent requests for needs. Prayers are worship, worshipful, rev, uh, reverent prayers, communing with God. Um, and then petitions are speaking specifically to God for the needs of others. Thanksgiving, you know what that is. It's where we've got a holiday coming up, but it's being thankful. All these should be a part of our prayers. And notice, these prayers should be made on behalf of all men. So when we're praying, we're supposed to be praying for all men. You know, I think it's important we pray for our spouses. I think it's important we pray for our kids. I think it's important we pray for those family members who are close to. We should be praying for those people, but we're supposed to be also be praying for, notice, all men. That's when you drive past that accident on the, on the side of the road. Those people are in a wreck. Pray for them. Even though you don't know them, pray for them. You pass by those other churches as they're about to convene for church as you're coming to Calvary Chapel. Pray for those other churches. Pray for the, Jesus said we're even going to pray for our enemies. Matthew 5.44, he said this, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those people at work that are giving you such a hard time because you love Jesus, pray for them. One of the reasons why they're giving you such a hard time is they're being convicted by your very presence there, and you need to pray for them. Pray for all men, but specifically it says pray for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Interesting. We're supposed to be praying specifically, not only for all men, but for kings. Those are in leadership. Those are exercising authority. Why is that important? Because God's established that authority. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. All authority has been established by God. God's put those people in places. Well, I don't like, I don't like our president. He's too arrogant. He's too rude. He's from New York City. Don't like him. I'm not going to pray for somebody I don't like. Yes, you are to pray for him. You're to pray for him. And do you know who was the leader of the Roman Empire, who was a king of the whole Roman Empire at the time? His name was Nero, who was not known for his niceties to Christians. He blamed the whole Roman fire on Christians and started an incredible persecution of Christians that killed tens of thousands of Christians. And Paul says, still pray for him. Pray for those in leadership, because your prayers could change those in leadership and guide them in the ways that they should be guided Pray for those kings. Pray for those in authority. And notice, as we pray for those people in authority, those kings and those leaders, here's what happens. It helps you live a tranquil, quiet life in all godliness. You know why? Because instead of gossiping and slandering those people in leadership, you're praying for them. And instead of talking to others about them in a negative way, you're talking to God and praying for God, for God to work in those leaders' lives and through those leaders' lives. Pray for them. So here's the first thing. First thing that's a part of ecclesiology, a part of the church. What should the church be all about? 
prayer. Remember Jesus, in the beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry, both beginning and end, he went to the temple in Jerusalem, his father's temple, the place of worship, and he lost, I mean, he blew a gasket. I mean, he, he had righteous anger to the point that he went into the temple and he took a whip, and it says in the, in the Gospels, he whipped all these money changers out of the temple, and then, then he actually, one of the Gospels actually said, he took a table with all the coins and currency and threw it up in the air. When I get to heaven, I want to see that in the video vault. Imagine Jesus, just quiet, gentle, humble Jesus, throwing up in the air, coins flying everywhere, and then he made this statement. These people were ripping off God's people, extorting God's people in God's house. And he said this, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And you've made it into a robber's den. What was Jesus saying there about church? What's, what's the first priority of church? Prayer. Prayer. And our prayers should be regular. Our prayers should be privately, individually, but our prayers should be corporate too. And that's very important that the church should be built upon the prayers of the saints. The Bible says actually when we pray, it's like incense rising to heaven. And what that's saying is God smells the prayers of the saints to the point that God's in heaven going, oh, that smells good. My people are praying again. And the prayers of righteous people, they're powerful. They're effective. They avail much. We have a saying around here, prayer Changes things, man. And we need to be a church that's involved with prayer. And we're doing pretty good in this. We could do better. We're doing pretty good, though. Every Sunday, I don't know if you noticed, we pray for our president, pray for our servicemen, we pray for our government, we pray for missions, we pray for other uh, ministries, even churches in our town, we pray for on a regular basis. Wednesday nights, we have elders and pastors up here, and, and as people have needs, we have you come forward and we entreat God and we petition God on your behalf. We pray for healing. I had a wonderful time last Wednesday night. Uh, uh, actually, one of the ladies in our church, sister, sister in Christ, she actually is one of our secretaries. She's been having some health issues and she came forward with a little bottle of oil and we actually anointed her with oil. We pray for healing. That's a part of the church's job. Prayer, prayer, prayer. You know, our staff, every, every workday, Tuesday to Friday, we're in the office, and we start as staff on, around my conference table, and we have prayer requests, and we pray every single morning before we even start our workday, because prayer is important. Prayer is a big part of the job of the church. Pastor Mike, on Wednesday nights, he's feeling led that at least one Wednesday night a month that he's going to end his message a little bit shorter, give at least 15, 20 minutes, just for corporate prayer, so we could be praying. My father's house, Jesus said, is a house of prayer. And that's what the church is supposed to be built on, is prayer. Individual prayer, we're supposed to be praying people, but we're supposed to be a praying church too. And I want more of that, because God moves in response to prayer. Prayer. Now it goes on, goes from the priority of prayer, and then it goes to, hmm, interesting, the ministry and mission of the church. This is good and acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, what does that tell us about God? What's God's heart? What's he saying there about God's heart? What does God's heart desire? For all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Interesting, he not only says, that's my desire, but I made a way for that to happen. And the way is Jesus. 
And it says that Jesus came to pay a ransom. The word ransom there is a price. And it's actually a, a slavery term in that culture. If you were indentured into slavery and you, you were a, a slave because of your loans or whatever, uh, what, what a family member could do is he could save up enough money to go to the master and pay the price, the ransom, to get you out of slavery. And you could be set free from slavery because of the price that was paid for you. What did Jesus do on the cross? He said, it is finished. Original language, one word, tetelestai, translated Paid in full. The ransom that was paid so you can get out of the slavery of sin was the cross. And Jesus died on that cross for us to be a ransom, a price paid for our sin. And here's the heart of God. The heart of God is that the church's mission is to get that message out that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sin. And you could be set free from the slavery of sin And the heart of God is, and the desire of God is that all men might get this message and be saved. Now, is that saying that all all men, all all people get saved? No, because there's a free will agent in there, and that's our human responsibility. And what 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 we know from the scriptures too is some men won't be saved because they reject the truth. But that doesn't negate the fact that our mission as a church is to have God's heart. And God's heart is that all men might be saved. And his passion to the point that he sent his son Jesus to this earth to accomplish a way for this to happen. His heart and his passion and his desire is that all men might be saved. Come to the knowledge of the truth. That's one of my problems I have with Calvinism. Calvinism has a five, point, uh, five points. One of the points is limited atonement, they say. And they say that Jesus just died for the elect. And that's, and that's not true. Jesus died for all men. He died for all men. Because God's heart... And his desire is for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We're told in 2 Peter 3, 9, that God's patiently waiting for the return of Christ because he's this. He says, he's patient, not wanting any to perish, but what? All to come to repentance. That's God's heart. It should be our heart, too. If we're a part of the mission that God wants us to be a part of as a church, we should be people that are out there with the message that Jesus saves And he could save you. But it's interesting to me. What's interesting to me is before it talks about the mission, it talks about prayer. And here's what needs to happen. Is if you want to be seriously reaching people for Christ, you need to be praying for them first. Praying for divine appointments with them. Praying for openings. Praying that the Holy Spirit would give you the words to say to lead those people to Christ. Because prayer precedes the mission. We showed this video that I'm going to show you in a second at the men's conference. It's so good on the priority of prayer in our mission. I want to show it again. Many of you may have seen this already, but it's worth seeing again. And ladies, you haven't seen it because you didn't come to the men's conference. So let's show this. Lights, camera, action. It talks about the priority of prayer in our mission. Revival. Now. Webster's Dictionary will tell you it means restoration to life, consciousness, vigor, strength. Awakening, the act of waking from sleep, or a recognition, realization, or coming into awareness of something. Revival, awakening. Northampton, Massachusetts, 1730s. Jonathan Edwards begins to preach, followed by George Whitfield. Whitfield spoke to thousands in the open air about the concept of spiritual rebirth, while Edwards warned of sinners in the hands of an angry God. 
revival swept the colonies. Countless lives began to change. Churches began to change. And history remembers this as the first great awakening. September 23rd, 1857, at lunchtime in New York City, a layman named Jeremy Lanfeard kneels to pray. America was in spiritual, political, and economic decline. There was financial panic and rumors of a civil war, and so Lanfear invited thousands to a rented hall on Fulton Street to pray. Six people showed up. Just six people. But those six people began to pray. Three weeks later, 40 people were praying. Within six months, 10,000 people were gathered daily for prayer. Over the next two years, over one million Americans out of a total population of 30 million put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This became known as the Great Prayer Revival. In the early 1970s, the cover of Life magazine featured over 80,000 young people gathering for Jesus at an event in Dallas called Explo 72. A year before, the cover of Time magazine read The Jesus Revolution because something undeniable was happening. Something unexplainable was happening. Something was sweeping young people all over America. It became known as the Jesus Movement and accounted for more baptisms in a single year than any other year in the history of the Southern Baptists. 400,000 people were baptized in one year. The First Great Awakening, the Great Prayer Revival, the Jesus Movement. What's the link? What is the common denominator? What is the first step? How do things like this happen? It's prayer. The first step is always prayer. History is clear. The record is undeniable. The blueprint is right in front of us. Every great move of God begins when his people pray. Not ordinary prayer. Extraordinary prayer. Unified prayer. Desperate prayer. And so it's time. It's time to pray. It's time to pray in repentance. It's time to pray for reconciliation. It's time to pray for personal renewal in our own lives. It's time to beg God for spiritual awakening in our time and in our generation right now. God can do more in a moment than we can ever do in a lifetime when his people pray. It's time to pray. There's enough power here to go out and change the world. And we pray that this will be the beginning of a spiritual awakening that will sweep the world. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord. Amen. Amen. That is awesome. Hey, um... One of the things I love about Calvary Chapel, one of the reasons I'm a Calvary Chapel guy is because our distinctive from the very beginning was the Word of God, just teaching the Word. I just, the, the, the centerpiece of what we do is God's Word and sticking with God's Word. But another thing that goes really back to the very beginning of Calvary Chapel and the very start of Calvary Chapel with the first Calvary Chapel in California was the priority of what we're talking about, mission and evangelism. It all started, the very first Calvary Chapel started with just 25 people, and Pastor Chuck, the founder of Calvary Chapel, and his wife would go to the beach in the mid-60s, and they'd bring a little brown bag lunch, and they'd eat lunch together as a couple at the beach, and they'd see hundreds at the beach, Huntington Beach and Newport Beach, they'd see hundreds of young people that had all kind of, the nation had tilted, and a lot of the young people all just moved out to Southern California and were hippies. And Pastor Chuck and his wife just started praying for all these young people that dotted the beaches, 
praying for their salvation, praying that they'd get off drugs and come to Christ. And then he had not only a burden for that, a desire to see them get saved. He opened up his home. He started having them in their home. He actually, for a season of time, they let some of these runaway hippie kids and stuff sleep on their floor. They led them to Christ. And then the word got out. And it started the Jesus People movement that was just being talked about, that was displayed on Time Magazine. It started at Calvary Chapel Epicenter right there. There was a church they discovered, these young people, that would love them, accept them, and lead them to Christ. And a dam burst. And all of a sudden, a movement started. And I remember talking to Pastor Chuck at one of the pastor's conferences, and he said from 1969 to about 1972, they had revival for three years to the point that they were baptizing 900 young people a month for three years. Do the math on that. Can you imagine one church, 900 baptisms a month for three years? No wonder there's 250 Calvary chapels all, all over Southern California now. And that's, hey, you know what I prayed for? I prayed, Lord, do it one more time. Do it one more time, then rapture us out of here. One more time, Lord, just open up the windows of heaven, pour out your spirit, and give us, Calvary Chapel Lexington, your heart. And your heart is a desire for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. A heart for people that are lost out there that need Christ. And here's how we could start with prayer with that. I'm talking about the importance of prayer with that is get a hit list. And I challenge the men at the men's conference to do this too. Pick three people in your sphere of influence, in your relationships, that don't know Christ, that are unchurched, that need Jesus, and start praying for them every day. Put it as a bookmark in your Bible. And every day you pray, you pray for those three people. You pray for divine appointments with them. You pray for opportunities to share with them. You pray for opportunities to bring them to church. And see what God does in the next year as you commit to praying for those three people every day for the next year. And God will move. That's in God's will. God's will is for you to lead those three people to Christ because God desires all men to be what? Saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And he's made a way for that through the ransom being paid for their sins by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Now, let's look at the message. The next thing after the mission is the message. Gotta have the message right, church. It says, for there is what? One God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born, the testimony born at the proper time. We already talked about the ransom, but let's talk about the message here. What's the message? One God. And there's one mediator between holy God and sinful man. And who's the mediator? It's Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. And this is an important message that we keep right. You know why? Because the culture's changing it. The politically correct culture we're living in right now is there's many ways to God. There's many ways to be right with God. There's many religions, and all these religions lead up the same road to the same, same God. And is that true? No, Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. We're told in the book of Acts, Peter preaching, talking about this very thing. He said, Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is, neither, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be, there it is, saved. And what it's saying there is there's only one mediator. 
There's only one way for sinful men to be made right with the Holy God, and we've got to stick with that message because we've got a culture around us that's saying there's all these other ways. We've got a culture around us that's saying, hey, you just got to be sincere. It doesn't matter what religion you have. It doesn't matter what faith you have. Just be sincere. If you're sincere, you're fine. Is that true? No, because you could be sincerely wrong. And that's just true. And so there's only one mediator, our message, between God and man. The one God only has one mediator, and that's Jesus Christ, who died to pay the ransom for our sins upon the cross. That's our message. And again, that's important because we're told in the Bible there's a spirit of the Antichrist. And the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. Listen to what 1 John 4, 3 says about this. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you've heard that is coming and now is already in the world. You know what that's saying? It's saying that the spirit of the Antichrist, the Antichrist is going to be that one world leader who's going to start a one world religion, and that spirit of the Antichrist already in the world, and his spirit is this, let's bring all religions into one. And that we're already going that way, preparing for the way of this one world religion, and one world leader. And the church of Jesus Christ needs to go against the grain of our culture and say, I'm sorry, but there's only one way. Don't even say you're sorry. We need to be unapologetic. We just need to say, there's only one way. And the way is Jesus. Stick with that message, church. Don't, you know, don't wash it down. Don't make it more acceptable. Don't make it more palatable. Tell people the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Stick with the message. There's only one way. Because if you don't stick with the message, you're changing to become like the culture rather than changing the culture. And we've got to give them the truth. Because the truth is what says. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and then the truth will set you free. And the truth is, there's only one way. There's only one way. I love uh, Ryan Reese, who was with us for the, um, the uh, men's conference. And he's this radical used to be musical festival director and just he's got hair down to his hips but he's going into public schools all throughout the high schools all throughout the nation and he's declaring Jesus is the way and he's filling up auditoriums in high schools and the high school students by the droves are coming to Christ through his message in these public schools you know why because they are this younger generation they want the truth they don't want to be mamby-pambied they don't want to be just told what they want to hear. They want the truth. They need leadership. And a part of our leadership as a church is to say there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus, and he died for you as a ransom for your sins. Let's stick with that message. Amen? Don't water it down. Don't make it easy. Truth isn't easy. Interesting, the ransom part too, very important part of the message, that Jesus the Bible says, 1 John 3, or 1, uh, 1 Peter 3.18 says, Jesus died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order, notice, to bring us to God. That's the ransom. That's the payment. 2 Corinthians 5.21 describes it too. It says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's our message. Let's stick with it. Amen, church? So that's, we've gone, we've seen the priority. What's the priority? Prayer. We've seen, we've seen the mission. What's the mission? 
All men need to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. And we need to be a part of proactively going out and being those witnesses and being that salt and being that light. Then the message. What's the message? That there's one God and one mediator. And who's that? It's Jesus Christ who died for our sins to be a ransom to pay for our sins if we believe in him then we're okay because our sins have been forgiven by his blood cleansing us from our sin. Now, let's see the order of the church. This is where it gets a little challenging. Not easy. The scripture's not going to be easy. I'm telling you, this is pastor on the hot seat right now. But we'll start with the men. The order of the church of men, it says this. And for this reason I appointed, I was appointed a preacher. Paul says I was a preacher, appointed to be a preacher. I'm an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Notice Paul's three roles there. He says he's a preacher. A preacher of what? The gospel. Preachers are those that go forth with the good news of the gospel and preach the gospel. And then he says he's an apostle. What are apostles? Apostles are those who go go forth for a king to an alien territory. He says, I'm going out to the Gentile nations with because King Jesus has sent me to go forth with his message. And then he says he's a teacher. Now what's the difference between a teacher and a preacher? Preaching is the lost, the gospel. Teaching is to equip God's people with righteousness. Teaching is the teaching of God's word. That's what we do here on Sunday mornings. We do more teaching than preaching because most of you are saved and you need to be taught. Because again, the truth will set you free as you get into God's word. Paul was all three. And then he says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. That's interesting. First thing he says about order within the church, he's saying this, men in the church, you need to be men of prayer. Men that lift up your holy hands to God without dissension or wrath. What does that mean? It means that you're not only a man of prayer, you're a man of holiness. And your hands are holy to the point when they lift them up, you're, you're holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means you're different than the world. You're not conformed to this world. You're, you're challenging the world by saying, you're going that way, world. I'm going the way of Christ. I'm not going to be conformed to this world. I'm going to be a man that is able to lift up holy hands because I have a holy life. I'm a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is my spiritual service of worship. And so this is the first thing we see in the order of the church is men need to be holy, And men need to be spiritual leaders. And men need to take their role seriously of being a man of prayer and a man of holiness. You know why that's important? Because most churches, especially here in America, the men are just either absent or they got a drug problem. You know what the drug problem is? Someone, their wife drug them to church. That's their drug problem. They got drugged to church. And they're just there because... Happy wife, happy life. I'm here because of you. That's not God's will or order for the church. God's will and God's order for the church is, man, we need to step up and be spiritual leaders. Men, we need to be holy. Men, we need to be men of prayer. And in way too many churches, the men are either absent or they're here, but they're absent here. That's the opposite of what we need in the church and the order of the church. You know, our church here at Calvary Chapel, Lexington, we're not normal. Have you noticed that? A lot of things are normal around here. The buildings are normal. I mean, uh, when we met in that gray building over there, they used to say, hey, that's the Hershey Kiss Church. It looks like a big Hershey Kiss. I love our buildings anyways. 
And, and we're not normal in a lot of ways. We have a U-Turn for Christ program here. We actually have four homes where guys go through drug and alcohol, and we help them get set free and disciple over there. That, most churches don't do that, but we're just not normal. But another thing about not being normal is we're, we're doing what we're talking about here. There's many men in this church that are holy and on fire for Christ, and I love it. I love the fact that we have a men's breakfast on Saturday morning that, you know, we, we, we come at 7.30 on Saturday morning and we sit around these tables with our Bibles open and we have 50 to 60 men just about every Saturday morning, not just once a month, every Saturday morning with our Bibles open wanting to study God's Word. We could be sleeping in because we're, we want to be men of God. Amen? I think that's awesome. And that's the order of the church is men. We need to be men of prayer and men that are lifting holy hands because we're living holy lives to God without dissension or wrath. First part of the church, now it's going to get a little challenging because we're going from men to women. And hang with me, ladies. I'm just giving you what the Word of God says here, okay? Just hang with me. I'm, I'm not, I'm, if it steps on your toes a little bit, it's not me, it's the Word of God. And look at what it says here. It says this in regards to order. And a part of it, I'll, I'll explain the history here as we go through it. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Now, you understand Ephesus, where Timothy was pastor. Ephesus was a major Roman Empire city. A lot of wealth. They had a, a, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there. It was the Temple of Diana. And there was the worship of Diana, a lot of commercial stuff going through the city. And a lot of the women were getting into immodest dress that wasn't discreet. And they even did this thing. They took gold and pearls and glittery stuff and they put it in their hair, which was very expensive. And they'd flaunt their wealth. And what Paul is saying is, hey, talk to the ladies in church there about not conforming to the world in regards to, first of all, their immodest indiscreet dress. Now, interesting, what does it mean, immodest? Well, the, the word modesty there is an interesting word. It means harmony. It means in order. And what he's saying there is as women of God within the church, the order should be that women are modest in their dress and they're discreet. The word discreet there means without shame. And what it's saying there is be careful, ladies, in the way you dress. And why, why does modesty mean, you know, order? Harmony, because if you're saying you believe in Christ as a lady and you profess Christ, but then you're dressing like the world, immodestly, without shame, what's happening there? Your testimony is not in harmony, in order with your dress. I know it's tough because we're living in an MTV culture, aren't we? We're living in a culture, especially you young ladies, we're living in a culture where you're being brainwashed to be seductive in your clothing because that's hip and that's cool. But you know what? It's not hip and cool to God. And also, let, let me tell you something, ladies, too. If you dress immodestly, what you're doing is you're potentially stumbling brothers in Christ because it says there you're not to dress immodestly because what happens with that is it doesn't befit you as a woman of God, but also what happens with that is you could stumble a brother because we're weak as men in this area of lust. I'll just let you know that. Men are a whole other animal. And if you're dressing immodestly, what you're doing is you're potentially stumbling a brother in the area of lust. And you're saying, well, I don't care. I'll dress the way I want. That's their problem. 
No, listen to what Scripture says about that. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And we as men are weak in this area. So don't be a stumbling block in the way you dress. Now, let's balance this a little bit, please. I want to balance this, and I want to throw some balance in there because I'm not saying that you shouldn't do your best to dress well, ladies. I'm not saying that you shouldn't even dress in such a way that you're not only taking care of yourself, but you're being attractive. That's important. Beauty's important. There's nothing wrong with that, but immodesty's crossing the line. But it's okay to take care of yourself. It's okay to buy nice clothes and be attractive in the way you dress and everything else. I remember J. Vernon McGee was this old preacher guy with a southern drawl. And he's a great Bible teacher. He's been not around for the last 20, 30 years. But he was preaching on this very subject one Sunday. And after he preached on this, this lady came up to him after the, after the sermon. It was right front, front and center and was greeting him and said, and said, Hey, Pastor McGee, are you telling me with this teaching that, that I, I, I shouldn't wear makeup? And J. Vernon McGee had this southern drawl. He goes, Ma'am? Ma'am, let me tell you something. I'm a good farm boy, country boy, and ma'am, when my barn needs painting, I'm going to paint the barn. <laughs> What's he saying there? It's okay. It's okay to take care of yourself. There's a balance there. Don't go to the other extreme of not taking care of yourself. But don't go to the other extreme of immodesty and conforming to the culture. Remember when we had a teenage daughter? I just, I stayed out of it because I got a strong wife. But I remember those years of, of Jennifer growing up in her home and being influenced by all the, you know, Lexington High School and all the other girls and everything else. And there were some times where she would have some clothes she wanted to wear and Heidi would draw the line and say, that's not modest. That's immodest. You're living in our house. You're not going out like that. And then Heidi became a school teacher public high school teacher, and she had the job sometimes of enforcing the dress code for Lexington High School, and that embarrassed our daughter and our boys even more. But she always drew the line. And one of the things I see wonderful now is with my daughter Jennifer. She's a school teacher now, and she dresses modestly. Dresses nice, has nice clothes, but she's learned the importance of modesty and being discreet in the way she dresses. And notice, how are you supposed to dress yourself, not only with modestly uh, and discreetly, but your dress should be by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. You know what that's saying? It's saying, hey, let your beauty be primarily your godliness. And one of the wonderful things is as you grow, ladies, in godliness, that is beautiful. That's beautiful in, in just seeing the inner beauty that you have. 1 Peter 3 talks about that, talks about this, this inner beauty that happens through godliness, that's a gentle and quiet spirit that just pleases God because of the inner beauty. And here's a cool thing, ladies. As you grow in inner beauty, the older you get, the more beautiful you can become on the inside, and that's what's more important than anything. Amen? Okay, I'm going to dig an even deeper hole here now. You ready? I'm digging a hole here, and just hang with me on this because we go from dress now to order in the church with teaching. And it says this, verse 11, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. 
For it was Adam who was first created, then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Oh, Paul. Wow. Talk about going against the culture, the culture of feminism and ERA and all this other stuff. What's Paul saying there? Well, let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that women shouldn't be involved in ministry. Some of Jesus' closest disciples were women. All the other male apostles fled at the cross. The women, only only John stayed with Jesus. All were, were women disciples that stayed with him at the cross. We see throughout the scriptures Jesus using women in ministry. We see in Acts chapter 9 that there was a woman that was being used to the point that she had beautiful deeds. Her name was Tabitha or Dorcas, another translation. And she was so beautiful in her deeds. When she died, the people pleaded with Peter to resuscitate her and bring her back to life because she was so important to the church there and the ministry of the church. And Peter resuscitated her and she came back to life. We see in Acts chapter 16, a lady by the name of Lydia, she was an entrepreneur, a lady entrepreneur selling purple fabrics, which were very expensive, probably a wealthy lady. And when Paul started the church there in Philippi, she brought Paul and the missionary team into her home. And probably the church in Philippi was started there in this lady's home because she had the gift of hospitality. We see in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, there was a lady by the name of Phoebe, and she was a deaconess. Right in the Greek language, it said she's a deaconess. So they actually had positions of leadership in the New Testament church, deaconesses that ran whole ministries in the New Testament church. So it's not saying that women shouldn't be involved in ministry. Here's what it's simply saying. It's saying this, that, that, that women are best using the gift of teaching, and they should teach other women. Titus chapter 2 says older women should teach younger women how to love their husbands and how to love their kids and how to be godly, basically. And so it's saying that the role of teaching within the church of Jesus Christ should be, if it's men and women, it should be men up here. Now, why is that important? Well, first of all, because it's based on creation. God created man first, and man was designated by God to be the spiritual leader. And here's what happens. If you have a woman up here teaching men and women on a regular basis, what happens is you're setting an example for the family who should be, if the spiritual leader in taking teaching and authority over men and women is in the church as a woman, what is it saying to the families when they go home? Then the women should be the spiritual leader in the home too. Note where Ephesians 5 says, no, 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 the man is supposed to be the head of the home and be the spiritual leader in the home. So we want to set the right example right up here. And that's important. Now, does this say that women can't pray or prophesy or even give testimonies in churches? No, because 1 Corinthians, Paul said women in that culture put a head covering on when you pray and prophesy. We're told that Philip, one of the New Testament deacons, had four daughters that were prophetesses in the New Testament church. So it's, saying, it's not saying women can't speak in church, but it's saying that women shouldn't be in the teaching role from the pulpit because it's not setting the right example for the families when they go home that the man's supposed to be the spiritual leader. And I know that's not hip, and that's not cool, and that's not politically correct, but I don't care. That's what the Bible says. And we're going to tell you what the Bible says because that's the truth of God's Word. And it's important because churches and evangelicals and even Bible-believing 
groups of people and churches out there are changing the message there. Even our group of churches, uh, Calvary Chapel, worldwide, is being split over this issue. We have Calvary Chapel Global right now. We have Calvary Chapel Association, and there's even a split. And it's breaking my heart because we got uh, Brian Broderson, who's at Costa Mesa. He's saying that women should be able to preach from the pulpit. And then we got all the association churches saying, and the regional leaders saying, no, 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 this is what the Bible says. Women shouldn't teach or have authority over men. Now, again, it's not a salvation issue. I'm not going to break fellowship with people that disagree with me on this, but I'm going to say this is what I believe based on God's Word because I'm a literalist. What does that mean? I think the Bible, when it says something, I'm going to take it literally. And I'm going to stick with it. And you say, well, it's just because of the culture. That's Some of the people that say women should be preachers, it's, or they say that's just a cultural thing. The women were uneducated in the Roman Empire, and that's why they shouldn't be teaching. No, at the end of this chapter, it's not based on culture. It's based on creation. And it, and it says at the end of the end of this chapter, it's talking about Adam and Eve, and Eve was deceived first, and it was also talking about the order of creation, Adam being created first, and so the men are supposed to be the leaders. Now, what about this last verse? Wow. Look at the last verse again. It says, but women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. What is Paul saying there? He's saying this, that one of the most important things, ladies, you can do if you have kids is raise them in godliness and have a a godly influence in their life that you're shooting them out into the world as godly people like arrows that will change the world for Christ. One of the greatest things you can do, ladies, if you have kids is use those 18 years that you have with them and then afterwards, even after that, sending an example of godliness to them where you are influencing the next generation for Christ and you're sending them out there to be salt and light for Jesus Christ. I just got Tony Evans' Bible. I love Tony Evans, great preacher. And I just got his study Bible. And on this scripture, he said this, great quote. It says this, Every time a believing woman has a baby and raises her child in faith, love, and holiness, she's preparing another offspring to help put hell on the run. Isn't that cool? And ladies, look upon that. You got an opportunity to influence a whole next generation through discipling those kids that God's given you. I think that's what Paul's saying. And some of you are saying, well, I don't have kids. Well, get involved with kids. Ladies, if you want to get, we need more people in children's ministry discipling those kids over there to be the next generation of kids that love Jesus that are going to change the world for Christ. That's what we should be all about. So what did we learn today about the church? What's the priority of the church? Prayer. What's the mission of the church? Hey, to be going out there to, 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 to have the heart of God that desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the church. What's the, what's the message of the church? Message of the church, there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, and that's who? Christ Jesus. Now, what's the order of the church? Men are supposed to be spiritual leaders, men of prayer, men that are lifting the holy hands to God, men that love Jesus and are on fire for Christ. And ladies, your job is to be ladies that love Jesus too and are living your lives in such a way that there's godliness of beauty in your life and you're displaying a beauty of godliness to a world and you're even raising the next generation to be godly so you could be shooting them out in the world to be like arrows that are going to change the world. Amen? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you, God, that we don't have to base what we believe and how we operate as a church based on what 
the culture says, Lord, but we're going to go with what the Bible says. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be that church. Not just talk about being a church, but be the church. Be the church that has a priority of prayer. Be the church that has a mission of desiring for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the church. Be the church that has the right message, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Christ. And help us to be the church that keeps the order right too, Lord. Help us as men, Lord, to be godly and holy, men of passion for Christ, men, men that love God and love, love Jesus and love people. Pray for the women of our church too, that, that you give them the power and the strength they need to live godly lives in an ungodly world. Father, I pray that we would be people that just because the world says this is hip or this is cool, we don't go that direction. We go the direction of your word instead of the direction of the world. Father, just thank you for your word being a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Help us this week not just to be hearers of your word, God, but doers. Help us to live out what we've learned, God, this week. And help us this week to start praying for people, at least three people that we know that need Christ. And help us to be bringing them to the throne of grace every day for this next year and see what you'll do in their lives, Father. I pray that you just give us a passion like you have a passion for lost people, Lord. Give us a passion, a desire to see all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, Lord. Give us even this week some opportunities to be your salt and be your light, God, to be your hands and be your feet, Father. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name.